1: Hello everyone and welcome back to New Books in Christian Studies. I'm Dr. Franklin Roush of Lander University, the host of the channel. Today we'll be talking to Dr. Christine Hong about her new book, Identity, Youth, and Gender in the Korean American Church. Uh, Welcome, Christine. Thank you. Well, I wonder if you could begin the interview by just telling us a little bit about yourself.
0: Sure. Uh, So, I was born in Los Angeles, California. Um, I uh, grew up there and then Around when I was eight or nine years old, we moved up actually to the Pacific Northwest, to Seattle. Um, and that is also where I went to college. And I was at the University of Washington. And I studied uh, English literature and communications. And from there, I um, directly went to seminary over in New Jersey at Princeton Theological Seminary and uh, obtained my Master of Divinity. Just started to call into pastoral ministry. And spent about five years at a church in Long Island, New York, um, during which I also went back to Princeton to explore uh, what it might be to do a Ph.D. And so I, I did a, a Master of Theology and discerned that. And after that, um, really decided I, I wanted to be back on the West Coast. So I went out to Claremont School of Theology, which is a Methodist seminary, to do my Ph.D. in Practical Theology there. Um, and. This book really is a culmination of um, a big project that I had spent a good deal of time on there.
1: Oh, excellent. And and just out of curiosity, so when you say discerning, like, what were you discerning? um, And and how did you know that this was the direction you should go?
0: Uh, When I say discerning, um, I meant thinking about whether or not I wanted to be in ministry full-time, first of all, uh, when I was doing my Master of Divinity, and whether I wanted to spend time Um, In the context, I guess, that uh, the the Korean-American immigrant context in which I was raised. So after seminary, um, I had several choices in terms of where I I wanted to do ministry. Um, And one of the things that I always told myself is that I never would go back to the Korean-American context. And I don't know what that told you. But... um, you know, after kind of really praying about it and thinking about it, I decided that that is where, exactly I wanted to go. And so the five years that I spent at a congregation in Long Island was with a Korean-American immigrant church. That was sort of the first part of the discerning process. And then when I went back to school, um, the five years that I experienced there mirrored so much of what my experience had been growing up in a the, in the Korean immigrant context. So seeing a lot of the same patterns and issues, and also good things that I had experienced um, when I was the age of of some of my students, and I was the associate for youth and family ministries there. And so I thought, well, maybe there's something to this pattern. And so going to Claremont to study classical theology and religious education kind of became a natural next step for me.
1: Right. And so it's interesting, you said you you really liked being in the West Coast, and then now you're in Louisville, right? Yes. <laughs> yes. well, I'm, I'm, from, I'm from Southern Indiana, so I, I know how to pronounce it, but it's Louisville, <laughs>
0: correct? It's perfect, yeah, perfect to It's <laughs> Louisville, and um, yeah, I found myself here, um, and, and that really speaks a lot to sort of my Presbyterian roots and wanting to be at a Presbyterian seminary, um, and Louisville is really, this, this this has been a good place for me and a good uh just a good starting place for my academic career. Uh, there is a very interreligious religious um, a, a school that's, that's inter-religiously minded, um, and, and that being finds its, well, its way into the book as well.
1: Right, excellent one. And just as an aside for our listeners who don't know much about, who, who are too familiar with Korean uh, Protestant Christianity, everyone, uh, every Korean Christian is Presbyterian, even the Methodist.
0: <laughs> yes, pretty much. I'm um, I mean, not very biased, uh, biased. Some Korean Methodists would say it's the other way around, but yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. <laughs> especially in terms of the structure, it's, it's interesting yeah. to me how very similar. Uh, even though Methodists is kind of an Episcopal structure, they end up being Presbyterian. Yes, yeah, yes. Yeah. Well, so then let's um, go ahead and jump then into your really fascinating book. So the title is Identity, Youth, and Gender in the Korean American Church. And for our listeners who aren't so maybe familiar, what what do you mean by Korean-American church? Well, the
0: way that I define it in in the book is uh, really inclusive of congregations of uh, Korean immigrants, but also their children and their children's children, so uh, American-born Korean-Americans. And in the context of the United States, often the um, Korean-American church would be inclusive of both an immigrant generation and that immigrant generation is, is still growing. So sometimes we forget that immigration continues to happen. So after this first big wave of Korean immigrants and immigration, we've continually had new immigrants alive um, in these congregations. And so that's sort of the, the static piece of congregational life. And then you have second generation Korean Americans. So Koreans born um, in the United States and their children, third generation, so you also have these, uh, decimal generations or the 1.5 generation of Korean immigrants that arrive, um, later in life. So not, or earlier in life. So not, um, when they're adults, but perhaps when they were children and early enough to remember that transition. So all of these people sort of residing and practicing religious life together is what I would consider the Korean American church.
1: And theologically, is this is this Protestant? Is it Evangelical? Is it Catholic? In the way you're using it? Sure. In this particular study, it was a
0: mainline Korean American church. And um, as you say, though those lines are really blurred, and um, that does not necessarily mean that the congregation I studied did not have Evangelical tendencies.
1: Right. Okay. Gotcha. And so your book, I thought this was not a term I'd run into before. But you described your book as a feminist ethnography. could Could you tell our listeners a little bit what you mean by that? Sure, I
0: really simply put um, Sheilaette Reinner uh, who is sort of one of the um the earlier feminist ethnographers who sort of wrote, wrote a lot about what that practice was. and she puts it really simply, feminists who practice ethnography or the study of of people's lives. Uh, and if a feminist is doing ethnography or any social study, it really it, the study itself becomes feminist through that lens.
1: Okay, excellent. And and in your own case, like because I I mean, feminism is a very broad term, I think. What what does that kind of mean for you? Then if if you're the feminist that's shaping ethnography, how are you shaping it?
0: Um, I'm shaping it with a really reflexive lens to how my feminism is particularly shaped. So how I understand women um, and, and gender and also perhaps gender roles and also binaries and the problem of binaries and how I understand that. Um, And part of what makes this particular study work as a feminist ethnography is it's really dependent on my um, ability and also my uh, openness to unpack how I have been formed as a feminist in order also to understand and unpack and and alongside of uh, my participants what it means in their formation as well. So what feminism might mean for them. And also to be inclusive that that definition for them might be completely different
1: from the way that I was formed or the way that I understand it. So it actually does point to the expansiveness of the term. Yeah, excellent, excellent. So, um, and again, for our listeners, I, I'm a historian by train, even though I'm a specialist in, in Korean history. One thing I really enjoyed about Christine's book was that she's using these terms I'm not familiar with. and I'm getting to learn um, that way. And there was another term I didn't know so much about it was practical theology. So can you sure. tell us what that is and how you think your study is going to contribute to its development?
0: All right, practical theology is, it's so interesting because there are actually courses in, in seminaries and in doctoral studies trying to define and nail down what practical theology is, and it really is an elusive uh, subject and sort of having an elusive definition, and I think, um I think that that's okay, and the way that I would define it is, uh, practical theology is a discipline that assesses or studies religion and religious practice and also works to unpack the nature of uh, theological uh, impetus maybe behind what those practices are. And I say that there is a goal, a couple of goals to practical theology, and one is to try to work at bridging the gap between theology as it lives in theory and as it is lived and experienced in life by people um, and the second goal would really be transformation of people and places. And, and for this particular purpose, it would be the transformation of congregational life. And There is a practical theologian at Princeton Seminary whose work I use as part of this book, Dr. Richard Osmer, who explains four really key questions and tasks of practical theology. And I thought they were, I mean, it's simple enough that I feel like we can um talk about it just in daily life and, and I use them for this study and the first would be the question of what is happening or what is going on. And the second question of practical theology might be why is this happening or why is it going on. The third question of practical theology would be what ought to be going on. Um, and the fourth question of practical theology is how might we respond to this issue or to what is going on or to what ought to be going on. And so you can kind of track this process towards transformation or for encouraging transformation around maybe particular issues that arise.
1: Excellent. Excellent. And so why, I mean, you're focused and if you're interested in transformation, why then are you focusing on these Korean American mainline adolescents?
0: Uh, And but part of it is really self-study as well. I think a lot of practical theology, because it requires such hyper-self-reflexivity on the researcher's own life, where we believe that um, when you research a community or you're studying a group of people and their religious embodiment, um, you really are trying to answer some questions that you have in your own life or that you've come across in your own life. And we don't approach things completely as a, a blank slate. So for me, this really has been about unpacking some of what I observed in my personal formation as a Korean-American Christian woman um, and growing up as a bicultural person and being a part of the Korean-American church and then consciously choosing against to be a part of that church as an adult. So a lot of this has been uh, a personal journey for me and personal investment in, in trying to understand even my own narrative through this process. Excellent,
1: excellent. So... If we move on then to chapter two, in in this second chapter, you're giving us kind of a background talking about um, Korean, Korean Korean-American history and immigration. So I wonder, and you talk about the importance that the Korean-American church plays in the life for Korean-Americans in the United States. Could you tell us a little bit about that?
0: Sure. Uh, I would say that Korean-American churches really began as a place where Korean immigrants, new immigrants could gather and worship. Uh, collectively together in their own language, with their own traditions, with um their own hymns, and oftentimes in an environment that was not hospitable to their presence. So as we kind of see with the way that we are still as today fighting waves of immigration and the rhetoric against immigration of people from different parts of the world to the United States, this has been an issue since the beginning. Um and so this was the Korean church really ended up being a place where people could worship not free from that environment, but perhaps for a moment um outside of that umbrella of just oppression. And it really grew through its history to become an activist center, particularly in California and Hawaii, um against Japanese occupation and the liberation of the Korean people. Um it became there was a time when Korean immigrants came here to study were sort of stuck here in the United States and they were persona grata over in Korea where they they had certain theologies that developed and they had particular um, theologies that developed around the liberation of Korean people and what that meant uh for Christian theology as well as they weren't welcome back home. And so they started these centers of activism in, in the United States and these centers happened to be tied to congregational life. So I would say, and you probably know this as well as I do, but Korean Christianity is really intricately tied to the liberation movement of Korean people. And it was a movement that also tied together then Korean people overseas in in the motherland uh, or to Korean people now here in the United States. And so has always been very transnational in nature as well. And so congregations tend to be transnational places. Um, And I'd say since the inception of Korean congregations, that these places have also helped new immigrants find a piece of home here in a foreign land, Um, it's become practically speaking a place where they can live together in community um, and preserve their language and culture and also do that apart from this false notion that assimilation is the answer to everything. Um, And it it becomes a place for many immigrants who experience downward mobility where even my parents, who both have master's degrees, um, came and, and could no, could no longer work in the field of their training or in the field of their choosing at the time. And so people who experience that drastic downward mobility, then the church becomes a place where you can actually gain authority and status, uh, where whereas in outside of American society, white supremacy really dictates that power does not belong in people of color communities. Um, and I say lastly, it becomes a place where, this, uh, where there is this... Um, desire to really preserve the cultural language and religion and pass it down to following generations so that what they fought to preserve doesn't get lost so that consecutive generations um, can really start doing that um, can, can not lose language can really appreciate sort of the, the
1: struggle that the immigrant generation goes through and has, has gone through Excellent so it serves, I mean the, the Korean churches serve a, a lot of important purposes but you're through, through practical theology, bringing transformation. So there must be something, some problems, right?
0: So yeah. what harms
1: or problems are there that you're trying to deal with?
0: I think one of the, the, the most broad, but I think, biggest issues is that because Korean immigrant communities and congregations have worked so hard on the preservation of their culture, language, and religion, that it's sort of been crystallized in this one time and place. Um, and that crystallization doesn't necessarily meet the needs or answer the questions of those outside of immigrant community and immigrant generations, including the women in my book. So is there really, and the question is, is there a place in that crystallization of culture, religion, language, tradition, is there a place for new voices? Are there places for bicultural, tricultural people then to contribute and make a
1: difference? in what it means to be part of Korean-American congregational life. Right. Um, And also, is there anything in particular about, for these young Korean women you're looking at, like, that that kind of impinge on them?
0: Um, I'd say that 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 is sort of the main gist of of what I was working towards in this book, of how is their identity... not only as Korean-American women, but Korean-American Christian women and their gender identity as, as, as women, How how is that formed in a place that possibly is not hospitable to the new self-discoveries that they bring? Um, and, and why would they stay? So if we were asking them to sort of hold and be these culture bearers for our Korean-American community here in the United States, what is the impetus for them to remain in these communities if they're not allowed to sort of go in and change them or be critical uh, about um, the role that they're asked to play or the expectations that are are sort of placed upon them.
1: Excellent. So we've been talking about, um, you kind of gave us an idea of some of the cultural um, characteristics and social characteristics of the Korean American uh, mainline church that you're looking at. Can you tell us a little bit more about the faith practices, uh, their theology and their prayer life and so forth?
0: Yes. um, There are particular faith practices that, are special and I think unique to the Korean American church. And I do do want to point out, there's another book called um, Seeing the Faith, um, Korean American Faith Practices. That was a, it was, it's an edited volume. And I mentioned it a lot in, in my book. And this is really where a lot of this comes from. Um, And they know and I know that first of all, some of the things that are unique is this multi-generational context of the Korean American church tied to sort of language and generation. So in one congregation, you would have separate congregations for children, youth, and English-speaking young adults, and Korean-speaking young adults, um, and then the first generation, or or maybe in a broader context, the immigrant generation. Um, And so you will have under one church umbrella lots of different ways of worshiping in the same church. Uh, we also have what, one particular way that we pray, or fervent fervent prayers is, is a particular way that Korean Americans pray, and this is a practice that originated in Korea. Um, and one could even say, you know, some of my research has, has led me to believe that this is out of really an indigenous Shaman tradition of prayer. Um, but praying fervently, and, and when you walk into a Korean congregation that does this, you will know it's happening. It's not a mystery of when it happens, and it's when the congregation will pray in unison um, and often very loudly together, and they're they're each praying their own prayer, but in one voice, and it really is this visceral sort of crying out to God for healing for um, whatever the needs of of individuals in the community might be, even of repentance or confession, and so it's It's really powerful if you've ever been in the midst of this uh, happening, and it can also catch you off guard, but it's very similar to the Korean tradition. I'd also say hospitality or the feeding of the community is very important to Korean Americans. Now, Koreans aren't the only people that will feed people on a Sunday, but um, this practice comes from wartime of when people around the country didn't have enough, and so uh, people would save Spoonfuls of rice to feed their community at the end of a long week so that everyone would get a belly full of rice and and be full and fed. And so this continues today in the United States as well. But unfortunately, it becomes sort of the ministry and practice of of women and primarily of women and also young women and girls in the church community. Um, Singing is also one. Singing is, is significant. Again, going back to the indigenous spirituality of Korean people, um, singing away the the Han of the people or the suffering of the people was the role of the shaman, and so it has been really integral in the spiritual life of Korean people since then, um, although not all Korean people would appreciate us pointing to that. Um, and so today in the Korean American congregation, singing is sometimes the only space in which men and women have equal status. And can do the same thing together at the same time uh, without there being gender binaries. Sabbath is another, and um, Sabbath is a, it, that practice comes from this idea that you have this community that protects people from sort of the, the inhospitable environment of the United States. And so coming to church is not really only about. The two hours or the one hour of, of the church service, but it would be, it's an all day practice. So people come to church early in the morning and stay very late till evening. And oftentimes when I was doing my uh, site visit with this study, um, I served at another church in the area at the same time. So I would go do my part of the service and I would come back to this particular church and they would still be going mm-hmm. um, as would my church that I just left. And so Sabbath becomes a, a, an entire day experience for people and not just the
1: moment. Well, yeah, it's interesting, too, because I think with the, the 19th, early 20th century American Protestant missionaries that went to Korea, and they were uh-huh. really big on that, and then it's in the United States, <laughs> yeah. but the Koreans remembered it. Yeah, <laughs> So it's kind of a funny thing. Um, well, thank you, and I, and I have heard, I've been to a, a friend's Presbyterian church in Korea where they did the the Kido um, <laughs> and it really yeah. is for our listeners. It's amazing.
0: It is, and it gives you, it really... When you hear it for the first time, it gives you chills. It really does because it's, it is very powerful and it's considered to be Holy Spirit led. Um, and so, and it will, it's you, even though people are praying on their own, the idea that they're praying together in one room and, and just out loud and sort of that vulnerability of the person next to me is going to hear sort of this deep, you know, the deepest cry of my soul and spirit. I mean, there's something really vulnerable about that process,
1: too. Right, right. And it, it's just interesting to me, too, because people, I think, in the United States have this idea of Presbyterians as kind of staid and kind of uh, formal. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so we, we've we talked in a little bit about kind of the, the theological lives of these young women, their cultural lives. Could you tell us a little bit more about their their psychological lives, the mental health issues that they face?
0: Yeah, and I really included this chapter in this book because I found that a lot of studies on the spirituality of adolescents didn't actually examine um, their mental health, and I think that that's just it's not a holistic approach, and so I really wanted to examine and, and look at sort of what, it, what are the mental health issues with Asian American adolescents, and I found that there's really not a ton of information on this until recently. There have in the last 20 years these studies have been done and we're now just kind of just, um kind of opening up sort of what this means for really my generation of, of Asian Americans and, and how they were brought up and what the the central difficulties were for us. Um, and so I'll just go through a few that I talk about. A uh, first concept really to understand is that Second generation and also 1.5 or that decimal generation, pretty much the English speaking generation after an immigrant generation is always going to be a culture broker generation where they are they do a lot in the home that often you don't uh, often in in the lighter U.S. society children or adolescents wouldn't even do things. So I remember growing up and calling the phone company for my parents when they had questions about their bill or calling um, the credit card company about discrepancies, um, answering the door when people came to the door that that required someone to, to have a conversation in English. And so this culture, this nature of, you know, you're a child and you're asking questions about self and identity, um, and you also have these authority figures who are your parents who are supposed to protect you and take care of you, but at the same time, you as a child need to protect them as well and also navigate uh, culture for them, it, it, it becomes a huge burden really for uh, English-speaking generations and American-born generations, and it causes a lot of anxiety for them. And so everything that they do is tied to the status of the family, um, including the status of the self and sort of bringing your family up out of uh, their struggle. So culture brokers, so again, and then status anxiety of um, would be kind of the next thing that that flows into. the so status anxiety about self and family, and some of this comes out of academic pressure. So when Asian American students don't do well in school, often that means that not only are they not doing well, but their family won't be doing well. So they are sort of the hope and the beacon of light for taking your entire family out of maybe a situation that, that isn't favorable for them. And so they not only have this pressure of, I need to do well in school, and I need to broker culture for these people that really should be taking care of me in my life, but if, if I don't do those things well, then I'm bringing everyone down with me. And so you can imagine, in formational years, how much pressure that puts on on individuals. Racism and discrimination, uh, which flow out of the white supremacist society, um, that is huge um just a huge thing that Asian Americans deal with, and especially in a culture that often seems sees race as a black-white binary. I find that for Asian Americans and also Latino communities, um, indigenous communities in the United States, that they don't often see that their issues are played out in the media or often their issues become secondary to um, the strife between black and white communities. And so find themselves... Uh, unable to be w- in solidarity with, with movements or with with um, around, uh, around racial justice. And so I found in my study that adolescents also felt that way, that they felt the impact of white supremacy and racism and discrimination, but not necessarily uh, ways to talk about that with other communities of color, even amongst themselves. Um, I think intergenerational conflict is a huge thing. And that really stems from you know, you're a bicultural person and you're learning to navigate often two cultures and you feel panicked that you might not be navigating either of those cultures very well. Um, and the conflict also comes from this performance anxiety of if I, if I, don't, um, if I don't perform well in school or, or at work or at these other areas of life, I'm disappointing my parents and then it causes that sort of intergenerational strife. Or that disappointment, you might feel that, hey, maybe it wasn't fair that I had to do all of these adult things and make adult decisions on behalf of my parents when I should have really been playing outside. So some of that. Um, Gender roles and binaries are some of the things that Asian American adolescents deal with, especially women, where they're told inside their homes that there are specific roles for them. And they may be told explicitly or implicitly, but when they go out into the world, they're given other messages that um women can do the things that men can do. Um that they're told that they're they're individuals when in fact in the communal environment of a Korean American home there really isn't a lot of individuality. It really is about the family unit. Um and, and gender roles play into that. And so, and so I say that those really are the main, the biggest issues facing Asian American adolescents today.
1: excellent and, and so inter- are some of the issues and and things that need to be dealt with as you're looking at this idea of transformation. Mm -hmm. To to deal with that, you go into a particular site to do research to figure out what can be done. Can you tell us a little bit about your research site?
0: Sure. So the research site was a mainline Protestant congregation, and I had a sample of 12 um, girls between the ages of 13 and 19, and some of them were 1.5 generation, and most of them were second generation. So their parents were actually recent immigrants, so not uh, not as far back as my parents come, but mo- but still an immigrant generation. And this was in the greater Los Angeles, California area. The congregation had programs for all ages and was what I considered really a vital congregation, meaning that the congregants were encouraged to uh, foster community there is to constantly come to church every day if they could. And they, in fact, had, had things going on almost every day of the week, but mostly Wednesday, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. Um, both Korean and English were spoken. And uh, they had about six ministers, uh, both ordained and unordained, about 350 members on their roles, about 100 to 150 any given Sunday, and uh, three services, so two in Korean and one in English. The lead minister was a first-generation uh, Korean a man, and um, but interestingly enough, I, I think he would have probably identified more with one-point-five generation. But I think that he went back and forth between that depending on how he felt any given day. Um, right. <laughs> the community was pretty insular and small, even though that sounds in Presbyterian world that sounds like a huge congregation. But for but the, this congregation actually felt really insular and small. And also the Korean American community in the United States, but especially in Southern California, is very insular. We all know each other. And so part of my negotiation with this congregation was to never reveal the identity of the participants or the name of the actual congregation at their request. So I'm um, actually asked several churches whether or not they'd be interested. And this is a request of all the churches and um Really, they, they wanted every single time I would kind of finalize the negotiation of the study, they would want to hammer home this idea that you're not going to tell people who we are. <laughs> or even nice. if you reveal if you reveal too much of the specific location, people will find out. So you can kind of say maybe that there is like a rhetoric of shame type to that, um, which is really a deep part of the way that we understand ourselves and culture. So I, I, I honored that request in this book as well.
1: So as you, you do this work, um, well, can you tell us a little bit more about, um, so what did you do then at, at this site? Um,
0: so part part of the methodology that I used included participant observation, and that's pretty a standard tool for practical theologians in the research, which just means you're supposed to be as unobtrusive as possible in your um, observation of people, but also participate, so you get to practice a little bit of what other people are practicing to see what it's like. Um, But that kind of relies on this false assumption that a researcher, this is a very old false assumption, that researchers can walk into research spaces and not disturb things. And um, we know now that that's just not true, that just the the presence of a a new person that doesn't necessarily belong in that community disrupts things all the time. And we as researchers... um, to never have enough skills to not do that. I mean, this is just the way it is. And so I had to sort of throw that out the window really quickly and be more participatory than observant. Um, I remember that I would stand at the back of the the space where, where these youth were worshiping and take a seat in the back and just be taking notes and not really interacting with people other than introducing myself. And I remember one of the the youth group members came up to me and told me that that was so weird, <laughs> 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 so that they they pointed it out that it was it was actually a disruptive practice, But like they didn't they didn't know what I was writing down. They didn't really understand why I couldn't participate with them. I really just become a part of their community. And so I tried my best. Then because this is a, a co research model, was really that instruction um, and did a lot with them, including go on a retreat with them. So I went on a summer retreat with this youth group and actually drove one of the cars and was considered one of the chaperones there um, and got uh, was really close to some of the girls in the study through that process. So a, a lot of what I came in with thinking that I would do and how I would frame my study went quickly out the window because of, of some of my methodology, which, which really was the co-creation of the study and the co-research of the study with this, these girls in this community.
1: So, as you conducted this research, um, you identify in in chapter seven five themes that emerge. I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about those themes.
0: Sure. Um, So, yes, five major themes emerge, and there were others, but these were the five that sort of rose to the top. Uh, The first one really was how complex identity was, and how much that is a negotiated space. Um, And I think that's something that that we know through through psychological research, but really for these Korean-American girls, it started even at the first interview of me asking, how do you want me to refer to you, or, or what would you like to be called? And and even for, I think there were two, two girls who didn't have Korean names. So they shared with me that their parents had never given them a Korean name because they didn't want the girls to, they really wanted the girls to assimilate and really bought into this assimilation theory that if they just became American enough, that they wouldn't experience racism and discrimination in the world. Um, And these girls really understood where their parents were coming from, but they said, you know, that's really not true. And in fact, gave themselves Korean names and kind of renamed themselves and sort of kind of baptized themselves back into the community in that way. So it was really powerful. So one of the themes that emerged was, yes, um, the complexity of identity as a sort of a negotiated space the second uh, continuas- continuously negotiated by these girls, um, and the second theme that emerged was that really this question of what really is curriculum, or what teaches, or what is teaching, and discovering that um, perhaps the things that in congregational life we assume teach, like sermons, Bible studies, uh, things like that from spiritual figures and authorities, are actually not the primary modes of instruction. The third theme that emerged was this idea of wholeness and perhaps this question of what does wholeness mean for Korean American Christian women and in particular these girls. And what emerged was that um in fact it really doesn't, that that it's really about piecing together fragments of identities. And part of what goes into constructing these fragmented identities um, are both cultural or Confucian um ideologies and also, which then get reinterpreted as Christian ideologies or Christian expectations. The fourth theme that emerged was this white Jesus, so God as this white man or Jesus as this white man, which is interesting theologically because Jesus is supposed to be the incarnation of God or this uh, God coming down to human beings as human beings are. Yet these girls really were, through this process of interviewing and rereading their interviews, discovering how far away the incarnational reality of God was to who they were and who they were discovering themselves to be. And in fact, this quandary of, what does it mean that Jesus looks like a white male and it's primarily white men that seek to oppress me outside of, of this Korean context? So asking really those deep questions about the perspective the personification of God or the incarnation of God. The fifth theme that emerged, the last theme, was the shifting of perspectives that um Korean American girls constantly, even through this process of seven months of interviews, that they were always changing their minds and shifting their perspectives of what it meant to be who they were in the world. Um and what they believed about themselves, what they... And sometimes we would go back into looking at interviews that they'd done at the beginning, and they would say, well, I can't believe I said that, or uh, that's not what I meant. And even though they would continually reinterpret what they had initially said to mean different things, depending on when we were asking. So that there were... Some of this process of growth meant that we had to carefully track changes that were happening in self-perception. So those were five
1: themes that emerged. So what do these themes tell us then um, about Korean American adolescent women?
0: I think there are a few things that it it tells us. Um, One, that I would say uh, that there are both cultural slash Confucian understandings of life, community, and self that have over time and perhaps through necessity become interpreted, and maybe through mission life, become interpreted as Christian over time. And um, that this is really... um, undergirded through religious education both in the home and at church. And one of the interesting things that I found was that folk tales, Korean folk tales, were told alongside of Korean Bible stories. And sometimes the girl couldn't really tell the difference between the two. Or or moralized Korean folk tales as Christian stories, even though they were never intended to be Christian stories. So they, they kind of imbued Christian meaning onto them. Um, And so that follows into another finding, which really is that everything in a congregational and home context is religious education. Um, That is not the sermons and Bible studies that these girls really think help them in their formation, but it becomes actually rather how other women embody womanhood as Korean American women that actually teaches them about themselves and one another. And so, if a woman is continuously, or women are continuously invisibilized in Korean congregational context, that they um, themselves learn that there's some theological practice in play here. There's some theological belief about women being invisible, and, and um, that 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 becomes internalized really quickly. Even if you're preaching. Um, you know, the fullness of the gospel for all people at all times from the pulpit. That is it's really what they see embodied is, is how they really learn. Um, another thing is that, that shifts and disruption and identity formation begin to happen as you ask girls to examine their own words and patterns of behavior and knowledge about themselves and other people. That If you're really trying to encourage um, de-thinking about identity, womanhood, what does it mean to be a Korean American Christian? That one of the easiest ways to do that is ask them to examine their own words. And so we did this constant pattern of when I would transcribe an interview of just constantly going back and forth to, to these young women and asking them, is this what you meant? Or how would you change this now? Or would you not? And every single time there were there were lots of changes that were made. Um, and and they would say, you know, had you not had me examine these words, I wouldn't have thought that. Um, that this was possible, or I wouldn't have had that shift in my understanding of self and identity or even my community. And part of what happens in this disruption um, of identity and shifts in identity through self-examination is an awakening of an Asian American consciousness, but also of uh, a feminist consciousness and also questioning of these prescribed ways of gender in, in the community and in the world. Um, Another finding or or something that that kind of came forth out of these themes was that we tend, as Korean-American women, to create these really deep theologies around suffering and patterns of suffering, and we sometimes spiritualize them to our own detriment. So for Korean-American women, this tended, in my study, to force their invisibility in their own community, which then becomes compounded with the invisibility of it, that they feel or they were undergoing in a white supremacist society. And lastly, I'd say that there's a tension between cultural and religious expectations that can become wearing on Korean American girls and their own identity development, that these bicultural ways of being are really about surviving rather than thriving, and they should be about thriving, um, and that they never quite felt fully a part of either of these communities. That they always kind of felt stuck between these systems that uphold white Christian life as normative. And counter um, to that was that their experiences or their identities were deficient in some way. And that this white Jesus sort of uh underverted all of that throughout. And the last thing that I want to mention is that um, we really discovered that that being resilient or resistant to these paradigms and these expectations of both uh religious, cultural expectations really war on them. So resiliency and, resist, and being resistant aren't necessarily good things here. Um, they actually make you more tired. <laughs> they actually wear <laughs> on you much more. Um, and part of, part of being resilient or resistant also fed into those negative theologies around suffering. So you have to be resistant in suffering. You have to be resilient in suffering in order to, to live into the wholeness of what it means to be a Korean-American Christian woman. And, and we found that, that that wasn't actually creating wholeness. It was creating much more fragmentation. It was creating much more invisibilization of their lives.
1: So having found, um, you know, having revealed these themes um, and considering that your your job as a practical theologian is to, to bring transformation, what are you going to do with what you have found?
0: That was That was a big... Sort of a big question mark sort of at the end of the study because part of practical theology also said if the community is, is, um, needs to also take a, a huge chunk of this transformation that is not up to the researcher to bring it about. And the researcher really names the piece that can be or ought to be transformed and perhaps ways in which the community can live into that. But first, the community needs to buy into it. Uh, and one of the things that we discovered was that not everybody in the community really Heard or saw this as um, something that needed to change. And so that then impedes this transformation. So some of the first steps that I really encouraged this congregation to, to, to work towards was to make the lives of the women in congregational life much more visible. And that means simply um, sh- giving them opportunities to share with each other intergenerationally what their stories are. One of the findings that was really sad that made some of my, my girls in the study kind of sad was that they actually didn't know the names of the women in the congregation. So they knew the names of some of the men, and most of the men actually, and also what they did for work, but they didn't know that the women in the congregation had jobs. And we had lots of fascinating jobs in the immigrant community and they, they didn't know that because they weren't encouraged to. It was like they they would only know Women's names in relation to who their children were. So Philip's mom was always Philip's mom and no one ever knew her first name. <laughs> so it was a, And it's such a confusion structure of things. Um, and so how, what would it look like if Korean American women across generations could start simply by knowing one another's names, knowing one another's occupation and if they have downward mobility, what that was like and what they had to perhaps give up in immigration? Um, Would it help the second generation kind of ask better questions about who they are in their own formation? So having those open conversations in congregational space are important. But then you can't do that if women are only always doing hospitality work. If they're always teaching and feeding people and cleaning things, how can the congregation become a space for them to just sit and dwell on their own narrative? So this transformation not only requires women to share across generations, but the congregation to sort of open a space for men to walk outside those gender binaries, too, and do other things. And so that's sort of where it became stuck: is, is how much the
1: congregation was really willing to transform. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for, for making time for us and for writing this very interesting book. Uh, if I could prevail on you for just one more minute, though, I wonder if I could ask you our traditional question um, on new books network which is what are you working on now?
0: I am working on so many different things it's about what emerges. But one of one of my um, one of the things that I'm working on is this decolonializing of Asian American worship. And so worship in the Asian American context, um, people have been working for years on what does it mean to worship in Asian American authenticity and I think that the next sort of question is, and what's emerged is, well, wow, it's, it's so entrapped in sort of this Western white normativity. So what would it mean is, is what I'm asking to decolonize Asian American worship, which also means decolonizing Asian American minds. So there's a lot of, and also decolonizing our history of mission and kind of unpacking that as lens. So that's sort of what I'm working on right now. And I probably will be working on it for many years to come.
1: Oh, excellent. Well, I look forward to to hearing how that all goes. Well, thank you again so much for being on with us today. Thank you.